Welcome to EDS at Union Now. In this Theology in the Public Square interview, Dean Kelly Brown Douglas will speak with the Reverend Canon Dr. Vicentia Kagabe. She is Rector of the College of the Transfiguration in Grahamstown, South Africa. Join us for the conversation titled Time of Two Pandemics, COVID and White Supremacy. Good day. I am Kelly Brown Douglas, Dean of the Episcopal Divinity School at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. I'd like to thank each of you for joining me today in this conversation of theology in the public square in the midst of two pandemics, COVID-19 and racism. Today, we take our discussion globally as I am most pleased and privileged to welcome my sister friend from South Africa, the Reverend Canon Dr. Vizentia Kabage, ordained to the uh, Anglican priesthood in 2003, PhD in practical theology, and currently rector as in Dean of the College of Transfiguration in Grahamstown, South Africa, the only provincial college of the Anglican church in Southern Africa and it trains and educates women and men for ministry to the people of that province. Welcome, Vincencio. So good to have you with me. Thank you. Thank you, Dean Kelly, for inviting me along to have a conversation with you on this public square. Well, we've got a lot to cover in a short span of time, so I'm going to jump right in, and I'm going to jump into the heart of what is not the first pandemic, but the most recent of the two pandemics that we've had to navigate, and that is the pandemic that is COVID-19. South Africa is currently battling the world's fifth largest COVID outbreak with more than 550,000 confirmed cases, which is only 10% of the cases which we are battling here in the United States as the world's uh, having the world's largest COVID outbreak. But we know what that battle looks like on the ground here in the United States, even as it's fueled with these tensions between science and politics, lives versus livelihood. What does the reality of COVID-19 look like on the ground there in the vast country that is South Africa? Wow, it, it has hit us hard. Um, it, it has exposed who we are as a people and as a country. On the 26th of March, uh, when the state president um, informed the country that it will be on lockdown and people should stay home, we started asking question, where's home? Um, when you say people should stay indoors, what does it look like for many of uh, um, you know, compatriots who don't have such a, a shelter um, in that. Um, when you ask people not to go to work, what are we going to eat? Um, so it has been one of the most toughest uh, moments that I have seen as a country struggling um, through this. Um, so loss of employment, um, the, the, the numbers are skyrocketing, um, poverty um, has shown its ugly side um, in terms of that. Uh, 
the status of all this is how now the funds are being misused, corruption um, by those who have been entrusted uh, to, to, to uh, care for, 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 for the less, less privileged and fortunate. Um, so it, it, it is tough because you have to stay home to be safe. Yeah. Um, and, and, and home is not safe, again, for many. That's very well said. What happens when home is not safe and when people perhaps don't even have a home and we know the realities of that, not simply uh, in South Africa, but here in this country. And so you rightly speak to one of the commonalities of how COVID has only laid bare the uh, issues of injustice and inequality and quite frankly, inhumanity uh, that is already at the foundation of our societies. I like to say the social morbidities uh, that people have had to live with. The one thing in South Africa that is perhaps not unique to it, but that has become, uh, shall we say, a reflection of some of these uh, devastating, dehumanizing social morbidities that the people of South Africa, particularly people of color and Black people of South Africa have had to navigate, uh, has been the reality of alcohol uh, disease uh, within the country. And so as you began to lock down, the government also put a ban on alcohol, uh, couldn't sell it, et cetera and lifted that ban uh, June 1, only to have to reinstate that ban uh, a month later. Can you speak to that? What, what's the issue here? What is, alcohol is a symptom of something else. What's going on here? And I know you wrote your dissertation on this, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 go again with alcohol and the church. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, Amongst many things that the government and those who are advising the state president on how to be able to help us navigate COVID was the ban on alcohol and cigarettes um, mm -hmm. in, in those kind of things. Um, both have hit people very hard um, not to be able to get your alcohol and not be able to smoke um, at, at the same time. And we have had two sides where people say this time has helped them to clean, get clean of alcohol, to um, you know, focus on other things. You had other people where they said they have said that the ban of alcohol has exacerbated other issues um, that um, were, were, were underlying in, in that. Um, the issue of gender-based violence has gone up. People blaming um, alcohol. Um, people not be able to function because there's nothing that gets you going. Uh, it has been that. Um, and those who are selling alcohol, they have um, talked about the economy, um, that now that means they will be out of business because they cannot be able to, to sell alcohol. So it, it took a while for people to get used to, but as South Africans, they got very creative. Um, there are many recipes online in terms of ginger beer, um, in terms of uh, pineapple beer and all other concoctions uh, so that people can just get um, the, the, their spirits, um, you know, down their throats uh, in, in that. 
Um, but we have seen when the ban was lifted, suddenly there was a kind of mirroring. Um, the uh, road fatalities went up. Um, the hospital's uh, emergency unit were treating um, trauma. Uh, that was, you know, caused by alcohol, as we told. Um, we, I've never seen such long lines at liquor stores. I wow. had to wonder, what is it that they're selling at that place that you have such a long queue? And, and it, it was that. So it was, it was the stocking up and, and filling the cabinets and um, again. So it was interesting that when now they ban it for the second time, um, the, the president said with immediate effect, uh, that was Sunday uh, evening. So when you say we stop selling alcohol with immediate effect, <laughs> it meant whatever you have, that's it. Try to ration that, but you can't go and stock up. Um, that. So, so I know that court cases now going between um, the uh, breweries and government in terms of lifting the ban. Um, so there might be the, the third coming of alcohol. Yeah, you know, it's what's interesting is that that has become almost the uh, site or uh, place of contest between lives and livelihood, trying to save lives and trying to save livelihood because of the alcohol industry and people's inability to sell it, et cetera. Yet at the same time, you're trying to save lives, right? And yes. so uh, in the country, and how does one walk that balance, even as we recognize that the wide consumption, if not abuse of alcohol, is uh, symptomatic of uh, other uh, realities, as we've said before, of inhumanities in that in the country that people are trying to cope with. And we find that same kind of thing anytime when you're talking about people who have been so thoroughly uh, dehumanized, finding ways to cope with that. And sometimes those ways to cope with that are not uh, fostering of life uh, to, uh, and, and even as they live in context that don't foster life. So my question is this becomes really an issue of concern it seems to that should be at the center of the church, mm -hmm. right? Because it is an issue of concern about lives, livelihood, et cetera, yeah. uh, to, uh, and moving us into a place where we don't have to make those kind of decisions where lives always are front and center. So I'm wondering, I know at the beginning of the COVID crisis, particularly in the Anglican church, that Archbishop Tabo uh, put forward some uh, guidelines uh, for conducting uh, church services, et cetera, as there were guidelines put forward here and we virtually uh, began to close that down. Uh, uh, guidelines such as smaller gatherings, uh, only communion in one kind. Uh, but I'm wondering if the focus of the church has moved even beyond that. So what has the impact of COVID been upon the church? And most significantly, what has been the church's role in uh, addressing this crisis that is COVID with all of its myriad issues? Yeah. Um one day someone has to write a book about the church's response during 
um, uh, COVID. Um, the, there have been moments of hope and there have been moments of letdown mm. um, uh, in, in that. Um, we have, I think, allowed ourselves to not put something on the table as an offering to how as the church and the state can find ways and other um, sectors to, to navigate this. Um, and and I, I know at the moment we have been um, encouraged to stay away from church. We can't say being barred from, because we cannot be barred from staying away from church, but encouraged to stay away from church and to have virtual services and all of that. Um, but there has been a part of the church that kind of overlooked that in terms of COVID has taken so many lives. Yes. Grieving has been a, one of the most challenging aspect of life to do in this. And in our context, our burials are prolonged because of the rituals that have to be performed. And now you cannot because of all that COVID comes with. And I've seen some of my colleagues kind of doing funerals without adhering to the um, regulations and all those kind of things. But the space of being creative, I, I, I feel that we haven't explored that much. Um, we're still lamenting the fact that we are not in our buildings, um, <laughs> but haven't been able to explore what church could be outside of a building where yes. we are um, yes. in that. So, so for me, that has been challenging that um, we wouldn't be able as a church to communicate what we have been told by the state. Um, I, I'm still hoping um, that one day we can have an offering to the state as a church on how we can deal with this matter. I, I, I really resonate uh, with how you speak of the church moments of highs, moments of lows, moments of hope, moments of despair emanating from the church itself. And this reality taking somehow the church has to take advantage, see this as an opportunity to begin to rethink, right? What it means to be church. And you stated so well, what does it mean to be church beyond uh, the building? And I, I, I want to return to that a uh, little later in this conversation, because you've mentioned that in other, in other uh, uh, conversations. I want to return to it. But I want to make a little pivot now, uh, even to this second crisis uh, that has consumed us, but has been an ongoing uh, crisis and an ongoing pandemic, and hence has been global, and that is the crisis of white racism, white supremacy. In this regard, again, our the particularities of our history between being black in the United States and black in South Africa may be different, but it's the same fight. Uh, it's manifest itself in your country as apartheid. We have yes. seen recently, of course, the emergence of the black life, re-emergence of the Black Lives Matters movement. Uh, to me, it's no accident that it would reemerge at a time of COVID when COVID is only reflection in the way in which it's manifest itself of the ongoing pandemic that is uh, white supremacy. But this Black Lives Matters protest has become global. 
Uh, and it is swept across South Africa from Johannesburg to Cape Town. Can you speak to how the Black Lives Matter uh, has resonated in South Africa? You smile when I mentioned Black Lives Matter. You perked up. So tell me, what's that all about? <laughs> um, I, I, I don't know if I, I need to smile or cry at this moment. Um, yes. Because there's trauma locked in our bones. Um, uh, when we start talking about when we talk about uh, apartheid and 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 which is an African's word for apartness, so this word that was driven amongst people of different races um, in, in all spheres, um, you know, from on paper from 1948, um, but in actuality from the early 1800s um, um, in, in in South Africa, um, in that. Um, and, and 1990 brought to us, as the world know, hope um, of things that could be. And reflecting on this, especially during the, this time of uh, BLM, is, is that on paper we have eradicated um, apartheid. The legislation has replaced some and some have been kept, uh, which we have seen how it has been used um, now by, by, by the current uh, government. Um, and so when, and it's not new because I know every time uh, there's a story of um, a black young person or not so young being harassed by police in the United States or United Kingdom or France, it has, it has hit us because we, we, we still ask, even today, is this still happening yes. um, across the world? Has in South Africa been a lesson enough? Um, uh, uh, too many. So, so with George Floyd, um, and as he says, you know, I think being in isolation did something to our psyche on how we responded um, to, 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 to the matter of, of George Floyd. But as we looked at George Floyd, we saw how the military and police, That's as right. they were policing us from staying away from all the spaces during COVID, the tactics that they used, the humiliation of black men. Um, and, and someone had said in one picture where a black man was humiliated in front of the girlfriend and saying, I'm, I'm concerned about what she's thinking at this moment. <laughs> um, the emergence of this trauma uh, as it continues. So for us, it was not looking at something that we said, oh, we once went through it. It's in so many ways, we still go through it. Um, the, the, the Human Rights Commission, um, I'm not sure how many cases they're still dealing with of racism um, in, in that. Um, people in their workplaces, people in, in their neighborhoods, um, it, it still is present. Yes. Um, in, 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 in deed and, and in word, we might not have it in a, as a statute, as, 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 as you know, uh, a policy, but, but we still sense it and feel it even in our churches. Oh no, yeah, again, you know, you speak to this common reality and there's one thing about laws and, pol and policies, but that is not the only way in which white supremacy manifests itself, right? And so we're talking about uh, even within the everyday 
lives of, 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 of Black people and of people of color. And so the, as I like the way you speak about the trauma lodged in our bones, but lodged in our psyches and our everyday realities is the instinct of what it means to be black in a society, in a world in which that life doesn't matter. So how you try to navigate that every day itself is a health crisis. I also hear you as you speak about people think, you know, we have these laws and think things have changed, but they really haven't changed. It's, they're on the books, but we're still fighting them. Well, here we are in this country uh, preparing for the November 3rd presidential election after a long battle uh, for voting rights for people of color, particularly black people in this country, culminating in the uh, 1965 Voter Rights Act, which has since been uh, eviscerated. Uh, and so we struggle again for that, uh, the right to, for all people to vote because we see new manifestations of uh, poll taxes, of, with voter suppression. And so in spite of the fact that we celebrate greatly as I'm sure you saw that we have a woman of color, a black woman uh, that will be running for vice president, Underneath that reality is the fact that there will be many people of color whose vote is being taken away as we speak. And you in South Africa know that battle more than well as you first got the right for one person, one vote in 1994. What, what can we learn from that struggle? And uh, what role should churches play in the struggle for a just society as it comes and relates to a just vote? I never knew what vote meant until 1994. Uh, I was not yet eligible to vote, just too young to vote. Um, I, I had to see that experience through the eyes of my grandparents and my parents on choosing their own government mm -hmm. and the hope that that vote carries um, in that. So it cannot be taken for granted, but I am seeing now in the past few elections where this vote has been taken for granted, mm -hmm. um, where uh, compatriots don't go and vote. And then we want to complain about the government that we have. And someone had said to, to, to addressing some place and says, you, you get the government that you deserve. Um, and, and, and was saying that if you don't choose the one that you want, that doesn't lie to you. Um, <laughs> that doesn't um, sell you nothing that you know, it doesn't exist, you're going to struggle. So, and, and we, I'm sure next year with local municipality and others that will come, the, the, the long lines are going to come back um, in terms of vote. Yes. Because again, we have seen what happens when you take the vote for granted. Um, those who couldn't vote many, many years ago before 94 are still alive. So they know the difference that there is and they're urging us to do that. And the church, I think, it has to play a role of not only just talking about a just world, but exemplifying what a just community uh, yes. looks like. 
um, uh, in that. And and I and 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 I feel that we we do good enough to pray um, <laughs> for this government. We do good enough to write open letters and chastise them for taking us for granted, for being corrupt. How do we empower those in our pews and everywhere else to say, this is what it means to have a government that takes care of you? And there's so many examples uh, that we can have. And I'm sure sacred text has examples of what it looks like to have a just community um, in that. And, and my thing is, until we rectify some of our own eternal issues in terms of race, we cannot hold someone else accountable outside of our home. My goodness, you have said a lot there. And, and you are so right, you know, the beginning of the church being church and moving toward this more just world that God has promised us all is for the church to take seriously what it means to be church by being a glimpse of that, right? Being this incarnate reality of, of, of that society in our own church. And you've said, you've spoken before the difference between God's church and an institution and uh, our own church in so many respects is more a reflection of the society of which it's a part then it is a reflection of the just world that God has promised us all. And so the inequalities between churches that we have a lot here in the Episcopal Church USA, uh, as well as the fact, I mean, our church, Episcopal Church USA is 97% white, right? Uh, uh, and what does that mean systemically and structurally? So you have said a mouthful that we can learn from and that we can work together globally in making our church a reflection, not of the societies which dehumanize, particularly people of color, but of the world in which God promises us, which all people are sacred. I also want to lift up what you've said. We can't take the vote for granted, right? And so as you've learned from your struggle, and I think from ours, that we recognize what happens when we take that vote for granted. So I thank you for those wise words. This is theology on the public square. Thank you, Dr. Vincentia. Now, I, I want to, we got a, just a few minutes. I just want to, like three minutes or so left, turn to this, what some would say the elephant in the room, Black women in theological uh, and ecclesiastical leadership. My goodness, here you are head of the only residential theolo Anglican theological institution in South Africa, uh, been ordained to the priesthood uh, since 2003. And you talked about at that time, you said that you have had lows on the journey because you've been judged superficially based on your age, uh, your race, and your gender, and you've had to continually work to prove yourself, you said, against these triple uh, kind of realities. Can you briefly say more about that? What has that, how has that triple jeopardy played itself out for you as head of the College of Transfiguration? Wow, it, 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 
outside of me, it has been kind of a microscope looking for all the faults that one can find. But internally for me, it has been, wow, I'm going to make it the way I think I should. There's no blueprint for this. Um, I'm not filling anyone's shoes. Um, I am not going to go for anyone else's style. This is an opportunity for me to be me. Um, and if the church doesn't like that, the church can decide otherwise um, in, in that. So from the word go, I decided that I'm not going to clone myself after someone else's. I think I know what I have and I know how to use it. And this is where I am. It has been a roller coaster. It has been a challenge. Um, and I, I've said it before and I've said in this space, I refuse to be the first and the only woman who's going to hold this post. So my work, my energy is to equip more women to come into the ministry, to be theologians so that we can do this. Um, our church currently in South, uh, Southern Africa, when you look at the face of the church, um, it is female in its parishioners in majority. When you look at the leadership of, church, of the church, it is very male. Um, and as someone would say, very black, yes. um, that too. And my thing is decisions about women for women cannot be taken outside of women being participants um, in that. Um, we have made many people angry. Uh, you know, I lost friends that I didn't know that I had. Um, as one yeah. excuse, um, this, 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 what I believe is a life-giving gift that we have, that we can do this ministry together. Um, and I look forward to a day um, where I can talk of women That's coming right. into ministry uh, and women leading. But if, for the foreseeable future, it will be the first black female. Um, and I need to correct that because I cannot be comfortable with that label for a long time um, in that. Um, so it, is, it has been a challenge. Uh, and just quickly to certain, when I left college and informed my diocese that I will love, uh, as a student, I, I will love to pursue my education. Uh, the person whom they took to me, uh, to talk to me about um, post-grad uh, study said to me, why will you wanna study further? <laughs> With the diploma, you must be the most educated person in your family. That, 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 that really, I felt insulted. Exactly. Um, because, again, I don't know how many young women who have come and offered themselves into ministry or wanted to study further been told, you are enough where you are. Don't try to, to, to do beyond what you have. So, so that's one thing that I've been fighting since then to prove that, no, 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 that, that was not enough. Uh, there's still more. Well, you know what, Dr. Vincentia, you have already made a global impact. And it's something that happens when women come in to leadership and women of color and I like there's a boldness and you have said that, you know, there's something good about the good side about 
being the first is that you don't have to follow any other models, all right? You can create, you have a whole new paradigm and you've done that. You have led your institution uh, in uh, struggles uh, against uh, domestic abuse, the abuse of uh, children. You have made it a green, green institution. You have struggled through the realities of drought in your country uh, and what that has meant for your institution. We could talk forever. And you and I will continue our conversations and our partnership and work that we will be doing together globally. I just want you to leave, leave with uh, answering one thing. What, what is the message then? in the space of 30 seconds, what is the message that you would like to leave us with? Even respecting the fact that in so many ways you are that message as you reflect the vision toward and embody uh, the vision toward a new just society and world. But what, what, what are the words you wanna leave us with? It's just this one sentence. We carry the aspirations of ancestors. Ah. Thank you. That's it. Yeah. That's, that's more than a sentence. <laughs> Thank you for that wisdom. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your witness. And thank you for being such a great sister friend in this struggle for a more just earth. I want to thank all of you for joining us in this conversation. <laughs> <laughs>